for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the word. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. And without my normal co-host tonight, Stuart and Paul couldn't be here. So I will quickly tell you about the show before I introduce my esteemed mystery guest for tonight, a returning mystery guest. So this is an internal medicine podcast where we do expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And we have quite a wonderful guest tonight. Uh, but with me is returning co-host, Dr. Cyrus Askin. Young, si- young Cyrus, is, I believe, as we were calling you last time. Uh, Cyrus, how's the chief residency going at Cashlack South? Man, well, Cashlack South, what can I say? Uh, it is hot, for one thing. Um, but other than the temperature and the occasional mugginess, uh, I have to say that I didn't understand what it meant to herd cats until I started this job. It is uh, it is truly uh, simultaneously one of the hardest things I've ever done, and it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done, too. So I'm really having a great time, but it's definitely challenging. To take your mind off that for a little while, why don't you tell the audience about our wonderful guest for tonight and set up the show because we had a lot of great uh, great knowledge coming at our audience in a few seconds here. Absolutely. I'd love to. So I got really lucky uh, being down at, at Cashlack South. I was actually introduced to uh, to Dr. Barbara Phillips by way of uh, one of her trainees uh, from the past. And so Dr. Barbara Phillips is a recently retired professor of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine, where she spent her entire professional career. She established and directed the University of Kentucky Sleep Center. Dr. Phillips is a past president of the American College of Chest Physicians and a past chairman of the National Sleep Foundation and the American Board of Sleep Medicine. She served on the boards of the American Lung Association, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the Medical Advisory Board of the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, and the Advisory Board to the National Center on Sleep Disorders Research. She has received a Sleep Academic Award from the National Institutes of Health and an Excellence in Education Award from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Wow. And not to mention that she has numerous, she has mentored numerous students, residents and faculty alike. And so without further ado, we bring Dr. Phillips on board and are super pumped to discuss sleep apnea with her this evening. Barbara, the first question that we love to ask our our, uh, guests is, can you tell the audience a one liner about yourself and maybe try to include something outside of medicine that gives them an idea of who you are? Right. Thank you. Well, I'm a very recently retired academician who has practiced sleep medicine full time for a long time. And uh, honestly, the only thing I miss about my job is teaching. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. Outside of medicine, the honest truth is I prefer most dogs to most people. That is, uh, I, I'm not exactly an animal person, but I, I feel in, in my experience, dog owners tend to be very nice people. So I'm, I'm guessing you're a very nice person. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of curious, you know, you, since you are recently retired, now that you, uh, in theory, have a little more time on your hands, what are you, uh, what are you doing these days? How are you kind of spending that time and, and what kind of uh, fun activities do you, uh, do you partake in? Well, I'm being outside. I, uh, I'd love to be outside. I don't think very many humans spend enough time outside these days. We've disconnected from that big timepiece in the sky. So I just recently came back from a week at Kentucky Lake at a cabin that I own where what I did was swim and hike and sit on the dock and drive my little boat around and pedal my little kayak around and have company and swim with dogs, which honestly, <laughs> can it get any better? Uh, sounds awesome. I, I, I feel like that's a little better than responding to emails, which is 95% of my job. So <laughs> Cyrus, has the, the, the chief resident doesn't make it into the outdoors quite as much yeah. as you are these days. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> before we move on to the main topic, I just want to ask, can you give a book recommendation for the audience, something that you think that you recently enjoyed or, or something that you think would be meaningful to our listeners? 
Well, this isn't a recent uh, reading, but it is a uh, book that changed my thinking uh, about medicine. Because at the time I read it, I was uh, sort of a, a young faculty member in the ICU doing what I consider to be borderline torture to people as they were dying. Oh, and it boy. was It was horrible. And um, I read a book called We... Uh, we die too long and live too short. And this is an old book, uh, but it it changed at that point in time. This book totally changed my way of thinking um, and, and uh, made me really think about, you know, since death is inevitable uh, and for some people, even the janitor knows it's coming, uh, maybe we could spare people some torture uh, at the end of their lives. I ha- I can I have to say I have not heard of that book at all. I'm very it's an intrigued. old book. Yeah, it's an old book. Yeah. Cyrus, did you want to ask one more question before we move on? Yeah, uh, sure. Sh- sure. I think I will ask just one more question. So, uh, obviously, Barb, you've had a tremendous career, and it's something we'll we'll um you know certainly be regaling here um for our our awesome audience. But um during that course, during those years of of training and practicing. Is there one piece of advice that you received along the way that really had a meaningful impact? Uh, yeah, as a as an intern, uh, I really struggled. Um, I struggled with um, never being caught up, never knowing everything I needed to know, always feeling inadequate, and not getting um, any any positive feedback. Uh, I mean, I. Uh, I didn't hear from much of anybody whether or not I was doing good, bad, indifferently. Um, and uh, more than halfway through the year, I said something to one of my residents about it. And he said, you know, at this point in your life, maybe you ought to be able to recognize um, and identify your own successes and your own uh, failures and give yourself some of your own feedback. Now, I think it was a little early in my career for me to get that advice, but for all of us, at the end of the day, we need to be our uh, greatest supporter and our, our most unflinching critic. I think I'm better at the critic part than the, than the uh, supporting myself part. Of oh, yourself? Sure. Yeah. Of yourself? Yes. But when, you know, you obviously also have to evaluate all kinds of learners and colleagues all the time, and you're probably much better at the supporting than the critic part when it is someone else. Yes. I guess my message is we all, we, you know, we need to celebrate ourselves as well. I like it. Thank you. That's, I can't think of a better way to get rolling. Okay, Cyrus, you want to start us off with a case here? I think I will. I think I've got a case here. Uh, so Dr. Phillips or, or Barb, uh, the case we've got here is uh, is that of Carl Winslow, a familiar name perhaps to those of uh, those in our audience. So, so Carl's a 54-year-old African-American male. He's got a history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes mellitus, hyperlipidemia and obesity with a BMI of 34. He works a high-stress job as a police officer with the Chicago PD, where he spends his days on patrol working through cases and trying to come up with more constructive ways to deal with his neighbor Steve's shenanigans. (laughs) He presents to your clinic after a health screening exam revealed excessive daytime sleepiness, difficulty with concentration, recurrent headaches, and fatigue. He can't quite tell you when his symptoms all started, but he does feel like they weren't a problem when he was five years younger and 40 pounds lighter. The exam reveals that he's a hypertensive, obese male with an 18-inch neck. And his labs are notable for a hemoglobin of 18.8. And so I, I don't think it's a, a shock here to anyone that we're, we're going to be talking about OSA. Um, and so I just kind of, before we really get into it, I just wanted to once again say that I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here with us to discuss OSA and kind of remind our audience that OSA uh, is potentially one of the most important medical problems facing our society in 2018. And based upon the National Health Sleep Awareness Project four years ago, an estimated 25 million adults suffer from sleep apnea. Uh, a number that's definitely greater uh, at this point in time. And I wanted to say that, you know, aside from the symptoms associated with untreated OSA, such as the headaches, the daytime uh, sleepiness, the fatigue, uh, things uh, that Officer Winslow here seems to be complaining of, um, the disease has also been implicated as a causative or exacerbating factor in type 2 diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, arrhythmias, obesity, depression, and the list really goes on. Uh, And then I also wanted to mention that really for those of us that are numbers people, 
the 2015 uh, American Academic uh, Academy of Sleep Medicine, excuse me, referred to untreated OSA as a staggering economic burden to the tune of almost 150 billion dollars in the United States. Uh, and so, you know, we've started with a case uh, of giving you uh, and our audience, especially, kind of a, a reason why we feel this is important. So, so to kick things off, uh, I'm wondering, in particular, with Officer Winslow here, what about his history is suggestive of sleep apnea? <laughs> All right. Well, so the guy has the um, metabolic syndrome, right? And uh, we know that well over 80% of people that have this particular tetrad uh, do have obstructive sleep apnea if they're tested. He, he also, of course, has headaches, morning headaches, probably, and fatigue. Um, uh, and the gradualness of this is also important because like most things in medicine and nature, sleep apnea is not yes or no, black or white. There are all degrees of severity. In fact, honestly, we are struggling in the sleep field with the cutoff of, you know, what's what's normal and what's abnormal with regard to sleep disorder breathing. How many times can you stop breathing during uh, a night and still be normal? How low can the oxygen level go without causing damage? So it's um, there, there is a gray time when people are not healthy, but they're not quite sleep apnea yet, and, and we don't exactly know where that is. The, the, the one finding here that just nails it, though, because all of the rest of this stuff is pretty common, is the 18-inch neck. Uh, and neck circumference, and it needs to be measured, not just like what size collar do you wear, because we all know the men who who can't breathe with their collar so tight. They uh, measured neck circumference of over 17 inches in a man or 16 inches in a woman uh, predicts significant sleep apnea about 95% of the time. So our man, of course, has an 18-inch neck. The hemoglobin, the polycythemia that this patient has, suggests um, uh, something uh, even more severe and different from sleep apnea, uh, perhaps obesity, hypoventilation, or perhaps daytime hypoxemia related to obesity. But um, this, this, pa this patient is an example of the kind of patient that I personally believe doesn't really need to have a sleep study. Mm, interesting. That's a really interesting point because we're so, I think in primary care, um, you know, we're very programmed to see, okay, this patient has, you know, uh, they, they are floridly positive on their stop bang or they're, you know, floridly positive on their Epworth. We need to send them for a sleep study. And that's kind sure. of a very right. linear thought process, which it sounds like you're maybe not in favor of all the time. Not, uh, not in a case like this, when it's really obvious to the casual observer and when your patient is in a safety sensitive position, as we say, where um, delay is a problem. I believe that we in the field of sleep medicine are culpable. We have made getting sleep apnea diagnosed and treated take way too long be way too much hassle and cost way too much money. If uh, and, and in your clinical experience, if you had a patient like this and you uh, wrote an order or made a request or sent a consult or whatever you do, uh, you know, evaluate for sleep apnea or get sleep study, how long would it be typically until your patient gets to treatment? Yeah, it's usually one to three months in my experience. One month would be optimistic. And then, and then they, a, a lot of the times now they have the electronic monitoring where if the patient is not compliant to their, to, to the degree of their liking, they'll take the machine right back. Correct. So it's, it's tough. Correct. And we do in fact have a little evidence that patients who um, have portable or home testing and then are treated with uh, auto titrating CPAP. In other words, they never spend a night in the sleep laboratory, that those patients actually are better about using their CPAP than others who go through the whole rigmarole. Uh, but, my, but my point is, this patient is beyond classic for obstructive sleep <laughs> apnea. And among the things that you mentioned as consequences of uh, obstructive sleep apnea, um, you did not include what I consider to be one of the very best documented consequences and the thing that makes sleep apnea a public health problem, and that is car crash, moving vehicle crash, um, because 
uh, all of a sudden, it's not just his problem, is it? No, that's a great point, especially, you know, in, in the case of poor Carl Winslow here, he's a, a police officer. So I can imagine that that's uh, problematic. Sure. Absolutely. So um, there's no question that he that he has sleep apnea. And then, you know, the, the reason that sleep apnea causes problems uh, is that when you stop breathing during sleep or, or any time for that matter, two bad things can happen. One is oxygen falls. And I think, uh, you know, as a pulmonologist, I don't know much, but I, I do know <laughs> that air goes in and out and blood goes round and round and oxygen is good and low oxygen is bad. And uh, so hypoxemia as a result of stopping breathing during sleep uh, is one of the main consequences of sleep apnea. And it is turning out to be the best predictor of the sequelae of sleep apnea. It turns out probably according to work done in Spain, that it's not the apnea plus apopnea index, whatever that is, the definition changes uh, almost annually. It is the time with a patient having an oxygen saturation below 90% or the T90 that predicts at least the cardiovascular sequelae. So hypoxemia is one physiologic change that happens. The other that can happen, of course, is sleep fragmentation, right? It's hard to stay asleep when you're suffocating, right? So you fall asleep, stop breathing, wake up, fall asleep, stop breathing, wake up. And this sleep fragmentation uh, probably contributes some to the cognitive dysfunction and obviously to the sleepiness that people with sleep apnea have. Barbara, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the the T90, uh, which is, I hadn't really, I, I guess I'm not hip enough to know that term. So I was wondering if you could maybe go through, say I'm a primary care doctor getting a report from a sleep study, what should I pay attention to? Like what, if you're pressed for time, what are the, what numbers should we, what will we see on there? And what should we pay attention to? What's just noise? Okay. So the, the metric that people have hung their hats on for years is the apnea plus hypopnea index, otherwise known as the AHI. And that is the number of times that a person has a complete apnea, defined as stopping breathing for 10 seconds or longer, or a hypopnea, which currently has at least four different definitions. <laughs> okay. But a, a hypopnea is some, re some reduction in airflow, plus or minus an arousal from sleep, plus or minus some degree of oxygen desaturation. And, and frankly, it is, the, it is the variability in the hypopnea definition and therefore in how the apnea plus hypopnea index is calculated that has, has left us in kind of a mess of knowing what is sleep apnea and uh, how bad is too bad. Uh, but at any rate, people will look at the apnea plus hypopnea index and if you are a naive clinician, which I am sure you're not, <laughs> or uh, an insurance company administrator, you think that an apnea plus hypopnea index of less than five is normal. You think that an AHI between five and 15 shows mild sleep apnea. And according to a recent ATS paper, we probably shouldn't even try to treat mild sleep apnea unless the patient is sleepy. You think that an AHI between uh, 15 and 30, and this is the number of times they stop breathing or struggle to breathe um, during sleep per hour, right? So 15 to 30 times an hour, they stop breathing or they have a hypopnea. You think that's moderate. And then you think an AHI of over 30 is severe. And there's some, uh, there's some correlation uh, between how high the AHI is and outcome for sure. But the variations in how the AHI is defined and calculated has led us to an epidemiologic nightmare. Other things to look at then, besides the AHI, a simplistic and kind of variable measure are the degree and duration of oxygen saturation, right? Because hypoxemia is, um, is really the prime mover and shaker of cardiovascular disease. So how do we quantify that? Well, one way is what is called the ODI, the Oxygen Desaturation Index. 
that would be the number of times the oxygen saturation falls, typically by 4% per hour of sleep. And some investigators, including uh, in the Sleep Heart Health Study in the United States and the Spanish Sleep Cohort in, guess what, Spain, (laughs) have uh, used the ODI as their primary metric of sleep-disordered breathing. Uh, They use it instead of or interchangeably with the AHI. But it is more reproducible because there's not a lot of variability. Like, did this line did this line fall by thirty <laughs> percent or not? You know <laughs> what I mean. Um, so the ODI is probably a more reproducible and more predictive metric, actually, than is the AHI, which is used by naive clinicians and insurance company administrators. But then finally, work from the Spanish cohort suggests that the time, the number of, of minutes during a night of sleep that the patient spends with the saturation below 90% is most predictive of all. It is the thing that correlates best with the risk uh, of congestive heart failure. It is the thing that is most predictive of incident cancer. Uh, And then, of course, cardiovascular disease and all the sequelae as well. So I would suggest if you get a sleep study report, look at the AHI, because if it's not above five, you're not going to get the uh, CPAP paid for. And if it's not above 15, the patient's unlikely to use CPAP anyway. But more importantly, in trying to figure out how bad it really is, look at the oxygen saturation. If a patient has an AHI of 20, but his oxygen saturation never goes below 90%, he's in much better shape than somebody with an AHI of 10 who spends 30 minutes with an oxygen saturation below 90%. That's outstanding. That's Thank you so much. So, Very uh, high yield. So My pleasure. With the, with the home sleep apnea testing, I guess this is called HSAT in the literature versus the polysomnography, the, the PS, PSG study, what, what different information do you get there and where do you stand on which one we should be using more of? I think the home sleep study should be the gold standard. I think that we should use the home sleep study for a bunch of reasons, including the primary metric there is oximetry, so you can get your T90 and your ODI, but also people tend to sleep better in their own beds. Also, because you could probably get a home sleep study done on somebody this week instead of waiting a month for it, Uh, and also because it is much less expensive. But there are at least four good randomized controlled trials showing that outcomes between in-laboratory sleep studies and home sleep studies are pretty much the same, except Hmm. for two things. With home sleep studies, um, people tend to adhere to CPAP better. Nobody knows why, but that's kind of important. But also with home sleep studies, you do have a greater uh, chance of data loss and having to repeat the study. I would, so I, I, I really think we should use home studies as the standard thing and only do an in-lab study if we have a good reason to do so. And we can link to some of those. I, I, there, was, there was a couple of them in 2017, the home versus the PSG. And uh, so we'll, we'll put some links in the, in the show notes to those. And I wonder if it's just, you know, when patients as, when I was talking to patients about sleep studies more often than I am these days, they would always say like, oh, I didn't sleep in that lab. I don't believe that test. So maybe if they're home and they do a home sleep study and it's positive, maybe they're more likely to be invested and believe the results. Maybe that's part of it. I think that's true. And I think when patients tell you that they didn't sleep as well in that laboratory, they probably are also telling you the truth. But at least in the laboratory, you are measuring sleep, which you cannot do with a home sleep study generally. So at least you could tell whether they slept in the laboratory or not. At least you can, you know, investigate that claim. Okay. Cyrus where, where do you want to take it from here? I know we have uh, limited time with Barbara and I really want to make sure we get to all our big, big burning sure. questions. Yeah. Sure. Why don't, so yeah, uh-huh. why don't, why don't I ask, uh, you know, what are the, what are the consequences of sleep apnea and, and how do these patients kind of present in the clinic with problems that, uh, that maybe require additional intervention aside from just treating their uh, sleep apnea? Right. So it is pretty rare for somebody just to have sleep apnea and nothing else. Right. Um, but there is there is one uh, one message that I would like to get across clearly um, in, in this 
broadcast, and, and that is that you don't have to be heavy to have sleep apnea. Um, people do have sleep apnea for all kinds of reasons, including they are hypothyroid. They have uh, a, a receding chin or even an anomaly like Down syndrome or Treacher Collins where the pharynx is misshapen and therefore narrowed. They, there is clearly a genetic predisposition to sleep apnea. And we know, for example, that people from China are at increased risk for sleep apnea, although they you know, as, as you clearly know, they're not as likely to be obese. Postmenopausal women um, are likely to have sleep apnea sort of independent of their body mass index, probably because, frankly and sadly, everything is sagging, in, and that includes <laughs> the palate. L- little sure. kids with big tonsils have sleep apnea. So you don't have to be heavy to have sleep apnea, but... A majority of people who have sleep apnea are heavy. So a majority of people who present with sleep apnea also have diabetes and hypertension and dyslipidemia. Sure, and, uh, sure. All, all of those uh, all of those consequences that that go along with that sort of sort of like our patient here. Right. Um, it's interesting that uh, our patient had uh, recurrent headaches, and it is uh, it is clear that untreated sleep apnea is a risk for morning headache in particular, uh, and that appears to be related to uh, hypoxemia, which uh, if you've ever been at altitude and had that headache, I imagine it's something like that because it is the same uh, pathophysiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, uh, we, we know that uh, for some but not all patients, sleepiness is the most important symptom. It's the thing that gets them in, sleepiness. And it is also the thing that keeps them using CPAP. Um, If you have a patient who's taking three antihypertensives, so he's referred by his nephrologist who knows that there's an association between difficult to treat blood pressure and sleep apnea, uh, but this patient isn't sleepy, He's uh, not very likely to adhere to CPAP even when you tell him, well, we might be able to get you off one or two of these blood pressure medicines. But if you have a patient who is not able to stay awake at her workstation because she is so sleepy and she uses CPAP and and it's like, you know, all of a sudden she's awake. She is going to use CPAP. Sleepiness is an important symptom because in and of itself, it predicts death. <laughs> it predicts cardiovascular disease. It, and it predicts CPAP adherence. And uh, there's this big debate in the literature about uh, whether we should even try to treat people with sleep apnea who are not sleepy because, first of all, they may have a slightly reduced risk of cardiovascular consequences. Consequences. Yes, I'm going to say this again. Um, cardiovascular consequences are most uh, strongly linked to degree and degrade, duration of hypoxemia, but sleepiness also uh, tends to be associated with increased risk of cardiovascular consequences. And uh, why is this? And I don't know, it has to do with leptin or something, little things that I can't see and <laughs> therefore don't understand. Barbara, uh, I wanted to break in and ask you, because this is a question we got repeatedly on Facebook and Twitter. Pa- people wanted to know, how much can we tell patients that that's, uh, good CPAP treatment will lower their blood pressure, and does it have a mortality benefit, either cardiovascular mortality or all-cause mortality? Okay, that's a really good question. So um, in observational studies, um, people um, people who use CPAP had much reduction in blood pressure compared with um, people who did not use CPAP. In randomized controlled trials, intention to treat analysis did not show a benefit in blood pressure with CPAP mm. compared to those who were randomized to no CPAP. But in that, that, those same randomized control trials, and there was a big one out of Spain, when they did a secondary analysis and, we, and they looked at the people who used CPAP four hours a night compared with those who did not use CPAP at least four hours a night, 
there was a blood pressure uh, reduction advantage. So my take on this is CPAP can lower blood pressure and reduce the risk of incident hypertension. <laughs> but here's the kicker. You got to use it. <laughs> right. Um, and and uh, again, in uh, studies of mortality, um, observational studies have suggested that people who use CPAP live longer than people who don't, uh, given that everybody has sleep apnea. But there are, as you guys well know, characteristics of people who don't adhere to medications and medical treatment that also, you know, uh, predict poorly on their adherence. Randomized controlled trials showing a benefit of CPAP in mortality have not happened yet. Mm. I'm, I'm sure it's hard to prove because it's hard to get people to use the CPAP. And then, so if you're looking at a population, there might be, like you're saying, the population of adherent patients who are probably making other lifestyle changes too. Maybe those people Correct. have a mortality benefit and that's why you see it in the observational studies. Correct. That that, uh, that is true. But in uh, the blood pressure studies, um, clearly, there the, there was a cut between those who used CPAP and those who did not in terms of uh, hypertension risk. So I think you are on reasonably safe ground to tell them that if you use CPAP at least four hours a night, there is a good chance that your blood pressure will fall, will be better controlled. You'll need fewer medicines, and of course, we know that hypertension there you know is the a risk for all of the other things we worry about with sleep apnea including things like stroke and heart disease and so forth so we're going to have a lot of questions uh for you like kind of rapid fire questions towards the end um okay. but the the next question i wanted to ask you about this because i think this is always so helpful to our audience when you're counseling a patient that's going to newly start CPAP, what what sort of things do you say to them to try to get buy-in, and how do you coach them through maybe the first two, visit or two while they're using it? Good. That that those are great questions. So, um, they uh, a first thing uh, people talk a lot about motivational interviewing, uh, and frankly, I think generalists are are better at this than specialists. But you got to go back to what it was that got the patient to the uh, got him to have a sleep study to begin with. Did he have the sleep study because of sleepiness? In which case, you can tell him with assurance. Right, the one thing that CPAP does is that it relieves sleepiness in sleepy people, right? You can't promise them it'll make them live longer. You might be able to promise them it'll lower their blood pressure if they use it, but you can promise them that if they're sleepy and they use CPAP, their sleepiness will improve. But then but then you got to go back to why, you know, why they came to see you. If it's because their wife won't sleep with them anymore, you can tell them that the gentle white noise that a CPAP machine makes is a heck of a lot quieter than their chainsaw plus at least in one randomized controlled trial, CPAP did improve erectile dysfunction. If they um, came because of morning headaches, you can say observational studies have shown that uh, CPAP improved morning headaches in people for whom it was the presenting complaint. So, you know, you got to go back to what, why did you come, what's in this for you, and address that specifically with them. Because if somebody doesn't even have hypertension and you go on and on about how it's going to help that, you know, obviously that's that's kind of a waste of everybody's time. Yeah, you're you're missing the boat on that one. Yeah. What about the mask mask fitting, different masks? Have you had better success with any specific type or maybe auto the auto uh, CPAP, APAP versus the just the continuous? Wow. Sure. These are that's those are great issues. So um, the right mask for the patient is the one that the patient will wear. <laughs> but there are three basic kinds of masks. By far and away, the most commonly used uh, and prescribed CPAP mask is a nasal mask, and it just fits over the nose. Um, the uh, two alternatives to that are a full face mask. It goes over the nose and the mouth, the idea being that if the patient's a mouth breather, the air can go in through the mouth as well as through the nose. 
And then the third kind is so-called nasal pillows that look just like big, fat oxygen cannulae that get a, uh, a pretty good seal. So they deliver pressure through the nares, but they don't. there's nothing that goes over the whole nose. I always tell patients, go to CPAP.com or Google CPAP masks and look around, look and see what's available. There's not a whole lot of evidence to say that one mask is better than the other, although there is some emerging data. Well, there's two things that are emerging in the data. The first is that um, nasal masks and oral masks uh, probably require different pressures so that if somebody is titrated in the laboratory with a nasal mask but then ends up being prescribed an oral mask the pressure that they were titrated to in the laboratory might not be right for them on with a full face mask Um, the other is that probably or at least there's a signal in the literature that full face masks by that i mean the nose and the mouth masks um, might be associated with uh, higher pressure needs and also worsen compliance. Uh, and I'm starting to believe that data. So I, I would recommend for starters that if the patient has a, you know, if the patient has a real preference, well, woohoo, you've got an engaged patient, right? <laughs> what more could you want? Sure. Or that sucker, whatever it is. But if they don't, then nasal mask. In terms of auto-titrating versus fixed-pressure CPAP, um, auto-titrating CPAP allows you to bypass the sleep center altogether, right? You can do a home study at home and then order auto-titrating CPAP. What could be better? Cheaper, right? Adjust to the patient whatever they need. They drink a little bit too much. It can up the pressure. They lose some Mm -hmm. weight then it can lower the pressure. So um, th- those are the, th- that's the benefit of auto-titrating CPAP. And now there's really not really a cost differential between auto-titrating and fixed pressure. Having said that, there is starting to be a little bit of a signal in the literature that diabetes control might not be as good with auto-titrating CPAP as with fixed titrated CPAP. Huh. And and that might be because with auto titrating CPAP, the mach- the ma- you set the pressure, and I would recommend if you order auto titrating CPAP, and we do it every day, that you set the pressure auto titrating eight centimeters of water to sixteen centimeters of water. Why do I say that? Because. of people end up on 10 centimeters of water, plus or minus two. And uh, hardly anybody is effectively treated at a CPAP pressure of less than eight. And hardly anybody needs more than 16 centimeters of water CPAP unless they have, unless they're really, really heavy or they have some huge craniofacial abnormality. And so what will happen is the patient puts the CPAP mask on and it's at eight centimeters of water and the pressure ramps up until vibration stops in the back of the pharynx. So the pressure ramps up to whatever that takes. And let's say that's 13. Um, and um, the patient falls asleep and everything is good. But then the patient gets on his back in REM sleep and all of a sudden there's uh, more inspiratory airflow resistance and the pressure has to ramp up again. That is an event that may uh, be associated with a surge in blood pressure, uh, a little bit of sympathetic outflow, uh, perhaps some change uh, in uh, epinephrine. And then that may be uh, why we are starting to see the signal about uh, diabetic control improved with fixed CPAP, but not with auto-titrating CPAP. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Having, yes. having said that, I'm still a big fan of bypassing the sleep lab whenever you can. Home right. study, <laughs> auto CPAP, see the patient back. That's, that auto-titrating CPAP, which you have wisely set to 8 to 16, will give you a download. And that download will tell you where that patient, at what pressure that patient spends 90% of her time. She spends 90% of her time at a CPAP pressure of 12.3. Put her on a fixed pressure of 13. Wow. I like it. I like it. 
very, very, very powerful, uh, powerful tool. And I could see that being very, very effective to help us with our patients. Well, um, you know why you don't hear more about that? I, I'm, I, I would have just thought it's because CPAP is, is how we were taught. I don't know. We need to get these people into the sleep labs, titration mm-hmm. studies. You know, that's why, right? I guess, it's, right. I, guess it, I guess it earns some yeah. money, huh? Well, we've, we've made an animal that needs to be fed. Exactly. I like I how you're understand. retired now so you could say these things. <laughs> uh, you, you can ask anybody. I've been saying these things for 20 years. Uh, you you are awesome. I love that. So, yeah. So I actually had um, a question. It's kind of like this has been a recurring theme uh, in our on our Twitter, on our Facebook. And it's kind of like other than CPAP, APAP, what have you, medications, oral adjuncts, surgeries, all those other things, even like online, you can find a billion different uh, sleep apnea. um, Radio frequency ablation of the pharynx or whatever. So, so can you, can you dispel at least some of the rumors other than CPAP, other than APAP, what can we, uh, you know, turn our patients onto if they're interested and what should we just tell them to, to leave for the the snake oil salesman? Okay, just answer that succinctly, (laughs) oral appliances and surgery. In other words, oral appliances made by a dentist or what is called mandibular advancement devices have clearly been shown in the peer-reviewed literature, even including randomized controlled trials, to lower blood pressure and improve sleepiness. They are not snake oil. Uh, It takes a while to get one. Uh, A study uh, suggested that it could be six months between the time that you send the patient to the dentist, it gets an appointment with the dentist, gets the uh, device. They have to custom make them, and they're adjustable now. And there's there's something like 30 different brands of them that are FDA approved, each separately. But uh, it can take six months for them to get the thing uh, delivered and adjusted. But they clearly are uh, appropriate, reasonable treatment for people with moderate uh, or mild sleep apnea or people that are just not going to use CPAP. And we send people to the dentist every day. Surgery, I don't know what I can really say here. You know, I don't want to get sued or anything. But (laughs) let me just say that it, in my opinion, any kind of upper airway surgical procedure is still experimenting on your patient. Now, there are some surgeries that are effective for sleep apnea. Bariatric, tracheostomy. These surgeries work for sleep apnea. Mm, yeah, I can I can imagine that, uh, that giving someone a, a trach probably does the trick, and it probably is not the preferred intervention for most of our patients. But you don't have to imagine. We have we have data that definitely demonstrates it does the trick. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah, and, you bypass, yeah. And Cyrus, if you, I, I, this was recently pointed out to me by a pulmonologist uh, at Cashlack, a fine pulmonologist at Cashlack that I work with. I've probably seen this more times than I realize, but uh, some of these patients, very large, uh, neck size, they, they come in the hospital they and they leave the hospital with a trach and a peg. That trach should not be reversed because you, it's cured their sleep apnea and it's going to make mm-hmm. some of their other medical problems easy to treat. I'm not sure, Doc, oh. uh, Barbara, if you feel that same way, but that's what that was pointed out to me. I was like, oh, I never really thought about it that way before. Boy, do I feel that way. I feel very strongly that way. And and um, as a pulmonologist working in the ICU, I certainly experienced those patients that everybody knew had sleep apnea who would not use CPAP. Uh, and they wind up in the ICU and they're not going to use CPAP and they get extubated and then after and they do well, you know, for a night or two, but then they get intubated again. If If somebody with sleep apnea, either known or strongly suspected, you know, and as I say, I really don't think that we need to do a sleep study on somebody who weighs 350 pounds, has, you know, hypertension, difficult to treat, never mind, never mind. Somebody that's strongly suspected of sleep apnea or known to have sleep apnea who hasn't used CPAP on, you know, the outside, trach them. It's a favor to everybody, especially the patient. Mm. Yeah. All right, Cyrus, let's... uh, I think we should go to the lightning round and kind of go through some uh, some more of these questions. Um, sure. What about modafinil? This is uh, I've I've been asked about this before. I I had a patient at Cashlack who swore by it. What do you think about that? 
gosh, I wish I had some. I wish I could take it. <laughs> I wish a- I could get my insurance to pay for modafinil to compensate for the fact that I'm 66 and not as smart as I was. Or maybe I didn't get enough sleep last night. Or, um, And it's only $800 a month or oh my whatever. God. Yeah. So um, perhaps you get some idea of the flavor of my response. It sure. does have an FDA approval for the treatment of uh, residual sleepiness in people with treated sleep apnea, with adequately treated sleep apnea. Uh, And those people are out there. And the the basis for this is that untreated sleep apnea that's longstanding can damage the alerting signal, alerting center in the brain, uh, resulting in sleepiness that isn't going to get better on CPAP. uh, but I will confess that I have not been uh, uh, eager to prescribe modafinil. I, you know, I think it's uh, one of the, one of our uh, latest lifestyle drugs. And I will say this as well: um, the biggest cup of bold Starbucks coffee has the same effect on psychomotor vigilance as does 200 milligrams of modafinil. It's a little bit cheaper, though. What about the converse question, the Z drugs? Let's say a patient's like, Doc, I can't sleep with this CPAP on. If Maybe if you give me some Zolpa then, maybe then I'll, I'll be able to tolerate it. You know what? There's no study that's ever shown that uh, any hypnotic, uh, any Z drug improves CPAP adherence in people with insomnia. Uh, people without insomnia, where it's not even their complaint, it has there's a very slight move of the needle of CPAP use per night, but not people with insomnia. And I got to tell you, the risks of chronic, and we would be talking chronic here since CPAP use is chronic, the risks of chronic use of hypnotics far, far, far outweigh any proven benefit. I think that's that's like exceptional data uh, and a great way, I think, to approach that question when it comes up. Along a similar vein, uh, one of my uh, colleagues had asked about a uh, 2018, uh, I guess it was a, a commentary on dronabinol for obstructive sleep apnea. Can you comment at all on that? Not intelligently. Sure. Okay. It looks like <laughs> it was, yeah. No, that's fine. It looks like it was a New England Journal, like a commentary on it potentially being efficacious for difficult to sleep, sleep, uh, sleep apnea. So- we're we're getting we're getting into the final couple questions here, and then we'll get some take home points because I I want to be respectful. I know this is late, and we we thank you so much for recording with us. Um, we had a question. Um, we had a question about people with driver's license issues related to sleep apnea. I imagine you might have gotten referrals for this sort of thing. Is there any way around this? Like, if someone has sleep apnea, like if they're a commercial driver, they have a CDL. Did you have you ever dealt with that yeah. before? Oh, uh, all the time. Okay, so there's these are two very different categories of people, right? Commercial drivers versus us amateur drivers with sleep apnea. With commercial drivers, there's no way around it. If you don't want to deal with them, send them to a sleep center or a, a certified uh, a CDL medical examiner. For us amateur drivers, the uh, and I would recommend that you review this ATS uh, statement from 2016, I believe it was. Um, there's you should advise and warn and document that you advised and warned, but you really don't have to report these people, nor probably should you. I mean, an important public health principle is to not stigmatize a common, uh, deadly, treatable condition. And and frankly, I think that's what depriving somebody of their driver's license if they have sleep apnea, I think that's, uh, you know, that's stigma. Well, we've gotten a lot of great stuff. Cyrus, did you have any last questions before we get take-home points? You know, I think maybe to lead into the take-home points, uh, Barb, you have some great points on on sleep apnea and, and kind of highlighted why it's important for primary care docs. But kind of in your opinion, what do you feel is the future of sleep medicine? Boy, is that a great question. Uh, well, sleep apnea is more prevalent than asthma. And a long time ago, uh, we understood that Uh, Asthma is way too prevalent and way too deadly to be managed by specialists. I'm embarrassed and ashamed that sleep specialists tend to still cling to the notion that only they can diagnose and manage sleep apnea. 
um, because there are not enough of us to do it. And at the end of the day, who suffers is the patients, but not just the patients, of course, the people on the road and in the shotgun seat with them and also their family and, you know, and all the rest of it. I think the future of sleep medicine is that sleep apnea, like any prevalent deadly condition, which has a known and effective treatment, is going to have to be managed more and more by generalists. For one thing, the treatment of sleep apnea improves or can improve all the metrics that matter to uh, generalists, like blood pressure and diabetes control. Any other major take-home points you'd like to leave our audience with before we let you go? Uh, just that th- this is uh, sleep apnea is different, for example, than diabetes, in that untreated sleep apnea does not just kill the person with it. It kills anybody on the road with them. Well, thank you. This is, I mean... I'm sure we could ask you a lot more questions. We, we had more from social media, but I want to let you go. And I want to thank you so much for all your time. I will let you know when this is going to come out, which will be in a couple weeks time. And uh, really can't thank you enough. Thank you. Sorry about all the dog noises. <laughs> no, it's great. No, we sure See, appreciate it. You know, traditionally we've been a cat show. So I'm really, I'm really glad that we've been able to have a dog make an appearance on air because uh, my normal co-hosts have cat, cats meowing in the background all the time. Oh, I see. So diversification. This yes. is excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm honored to have been part of it. And you guys, thank you for reaching out. I really I appreciate this opportunity very much. Oh, yeah. yeah no, this, um, I'm so happy that you were able to find time for us. And I think that this is going to make a meaningful impact uh, for our audience. So thank you so much. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show, get show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at curbsiders.com slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes directly to your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. So send us your feedback. You can subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or you can reach out to the Curbsiders at gmail.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at the Curbsiders. And I'd like to thank our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Wait, where's Stuart? That's you, Cyrus. Uh, I guess it's just me, and I've been Dr. (laughs) Cyrus Askin. Thank you so much for listening.